Hi, listeners. It's Risa jumping in to remind you that June is National Gun Violence Awareness Month. To that end, a few of our episodes are covering this topic and speaking with subject matter experts. Please know that we know this could be triggering, so feel free to take a pause, turn it off, or come back to us later. As you're talking about health design, well, we have a gun that's basically designed for one thing, which is to maim or kill somebody. However, we have also designed it where a three-year-old can pull a trigger, right? Now, if you think about you want to just use one of those big lighters to light a candle, it takes two hands, but it only takes one finger to pull the trigger of a gun. And that's a design that we could change. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about bite-sized crime. Looking for a new true crime podcast to binge? Check out Bite-Sized Crime. Each week, I bring you a new case to dissect. I focus on the facts, giving exposure to some of the lesser-known stories in the true crime world. Subscribe to Bite-Sized Crime on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Hi, listeners. Thanks for joining, and I'm so glad to be bringing you my conversation with Drs. Lois Lee and Annie Andrews. Lois is a senior associate in pediatrics in the Division of Emergency Medicine at the Children's Hospital. That's Boston Children's Hospital. She's an associate professor of pediatrics and emergency medicine at Harvard Medical School. Lois is an experienced pediatric emergency medicine doctor. She's a researcher passionate about health policy and injury prevention, specifically regarding firearms. She was the inaugural Nick Littlefield Health Policy Fellow at the Network for Excellence in Health Innovation. And during that time, she worked as a health policy staffer for Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. That's a hat tip to Rhode Island listeners. Dr. Annie Andrews decided to run for Congress. She wanted to give children a voice, a visible voice in Washington, D.C. She was the Democratic nominee in South Carolina's first congressional district in 2022. Currently, she's a professor of pediatrics at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, South Carolina, where she cares for children and adolescents at the Children's Hospital. Now, when we get to the conversation, I've posed the question, what was your aha moment regarding firearm safety and prevention? I love that question. My aha moment came after the Parkland shooting in 2018. That year, my oldest child was in elementary school. So it was the first time that I experienced one of these horrific mass school shootings as the parent of an elementary student. And it just shook me to my core. So within weeks of that meeting, I attended my first Moms Demand Action meeting and got on my path of advocacy that led me to ultimately run for Congress and do all of the work I'm doing in gun violence prevention. The other switch I made after that shooting, though, and I remember vividly sitting in my parking garage at MUSC, sitting there in the morning and thinking, you know, I've spent the past five, six, seven years as an asthma researcher. And I'm going to put all that aside. And now I'm going to start studying the problem of gun violence because the moment is so urgent and we have to act. I started about 10 years ago. And interestingly, our very first firearm epidemiology paper, we had difficulty getting uh, published in the United States. So it actually got published by a British medical journal publication, ultimately, um, called the Archives of Diseases in Childhood. Uh, And then um, we had a We have a trauma research group. Uh, Trayvon Martin was shot and killed in his own neighborhood uh, in Florida. And that got our research group really thinking. We'd started 
to look at policy and how that affects injuries, mostly around motor vehicles. And uh, one of our members of our group thought, well, how do firearm laws affect firearm deaths on the state level? And shockingly, in 2013, nobody had looked at that in the United States on any really rigorous level. So that was really one of the first um, deep papers that we did. And we found, not surprisingly, that states that had more restrictive firearm related laws actually had lower death rates from firearms. And from that day on, basically, our group has continued to uh, do work in that space. Yeah. A little Risa curiosity question. Uh, when we were all growing up, I don't think our parents asked before we were going to play at a friend's house after school or to sleep over on the weekend, oh, is there a gun in the house? Uh, what is your approach when your children have wanted to go have a play date? Well, I do have to say I live in the state of Massachusetts, where we have among the lowest uh, farm ownership prevalence rates in the country. And so here, actually, we don't routinely uh, ask, at least in my neighborhood. Um, and perhaps I should, because I've actually found out sometimes after the fact that someone did own a firearm, um, and I was somewhat surprised about that. But I do counsel as I talk around the country, um, but depending on where you live, that that is a question you should ask. But you ask it in the frame of other things. Are you, do you have the right size car seat? My son has a peanut allergy. Please make sure we're careful about what he eats. And so you're not just putting the focus on firearms, but again, it's about child safety. It's so interesting because, of course, I'm here in South Carolina, where we have one of the highest rates of gun ownership, gun homicides, gun violence across the board. And so this has been a really important part of the work that I've done in this space. So right after the Parkland shooting, when I joined Moms Demand Action, I got really involved in their educational campaign called Be Smart, which is an adult-focused educational campaign that aims to reduce the incidence of firearm injuries among children through secure storage counseling. So talking to parents about why they need to keep their guns locked, unloaded, and separate from ammunition. So we brought the Be Smart program into our pediatric residency clinic where we distribute gun locks along with this educational information. Totally agree with Lois that you have to ask these questions in a non-confrontational, non-judgmental way. And even here in the South, when we started asking our patients at Well Child Checks about this, we have had essentially no pushback because Parents expect pediatricians to talk to them about things related to their children's safety. So our residents are experts at just weaving it into the social history, both in well child checks and during hospital admissions. And as a parent, I quickly got in the habit of texting parents before a first play date. And exactly like Lois said, I will say, hey, Henry is so excited to come over to play. I just want you to know that he is a strong swimmer. He's not afraid of dogs. He has no allergies, but he is very curious. And so I just want to be sure there are no unsecured guns in your home. And again, I don't get negative pushback. If they do say that they have guns that are secured, I do make sure to confirm that it is a way that I feel is secure and not just in a nightstand drawer. But it is an important conversation that we really all should be having, especially when we live in areas where there's high rates of gun ownership. Listeners are curious. Um, do you have children? What are the ages of your children? And where are they sort of on the, the spectrum of, of out of the house, in the house, in terms of being concerned about this play date? Uh, Lois, again, take it first, then Annie. 
So I have a 20 year old and he's in college in upstate New York. He happens to be home for the summer. But, you know, you hope at that point that you've sort of trained them to know what are sort of the safe things. But, you know, when he was a younger child, he was very curious. And I think that's actually when you have that conversation about asking about firearms in the home, you can kind of throw your kid under the bus, right? And sort of blame them for why you're asking. And then I have a 16 year old daughter who still lives at home. Uh, and she's, you know, on the less curious side, I would say, even as a young child. Um, but again, she's out there driving. So there's different risks I'm worried about with her. And I have three kids and they are all in elementary school. I have an 11 year old daughter, an eight year old son and a six year old daughter. And so we are in peak curiosity land, especially my middle son. Um, so this is something I think about every time they go to someone's house. We also live in a neighborhood where kids are running in and out of each other's homes all the time. So I have to be sure that I'm keeping tabs on the homes that my children are going in and be sure that I'm comfortable with the safety situation there. And one other thing I will say here is in my old neighborhood, when I first started getting involved in the Be Smart program, I actually hosted a little wine and cheese party, invited all my cul-de-sac moms over over and we had this conversation and it was great for all of us because we were able to share, you know, the situations at our own homes, who owns guns, who doesn't, how they're locked and why this is so important. And then of course, as moms, we talked about all, a whole host of other things, but it just made me feel so much more comfortable. So I encourage parents to just find a way into these conversations. I'm so glad that in designing this conversation and having both of you join that we're covering sort of uh, variability and variances in states, in uh, parents, in children, and in ages of those children and what the worry is. Lois, you've done some of the deep dive research, and the age that you are looking is from age zero to 24. Why all the way up to age 24? So we know actually our teens and young adults are at highest risk for firearm violence. And um, if you look at both deaths and uh, non-fatal injuries from firearms, the majority are due to what we say an intentional intent, intent, and that deaths are really two thirds are from homicide and one third are from suicide. And that really affects this kind of older teenager, young adult population. So you can imagine prevention strategies for suicide are gonna be very different for homicide. And then a very small uh, percentage are unintentional uh, shootings, but we have to think about that too, because, you know, as you're talking about health design, well, we have a gun that's basically designed for one thing, which is to maim or kill somebody. However, we have also designed it where a three year old can pull a trigger, right? Now, if you think about you want to just use one of those big lighters to light a candle, it takes two hands, but it only takes one finger to pull the trigger of a gun. And that's a design that we could change. You recently gave a talk where you provided quite a bit of the demographics and the background, and there's a nice compliment to uh, Annie's organization, Their Future, Our Vote, and the website, and you both are basically discussing about the demographics. You gave this statistic, this number, greater than 10,000 youth between the ages of 1 and 24 years old will die by firearms every year, greater than 10,000 youth will die. And you gave it an even better, maybe easier to visualize perspective of that. That's one school bus full of children every three days dies. Annie, from your website, you talked a little bit about zip code versus genetic code. And I'm wondering if you can expand on that concept. Yeah. I mean, I think this conversation is so important because 
gun violence became the leading cause of death for children in this country in 2019. And that is because of our lack of a comprehensive public health approach to this problem. So the story is just fascinating why we're just decades behind where we should be on this problem from a public health perspective. Um, just like everything else we talk about in public health as a pediatrician, we talk about asthma risk factors, environmental risk factors for asthma, um, you know, health policy that can help children with asthma get more inhalers in more children's hands. The same approach has to be taken with gun violence. And there are just so many, you know, systemic racism, environmental racism factors that drive these problems among our youth. And gun violence is one of the leading drivers of racial health inequities in children in this country, because even though it just became the leading cause of death for all children, it's been the leading cause of death for black and brown children in this country for decades. And so there are just so many environmental systemic factors that drive these problems in our society. And that is why we talk about that difference between genetic code and zip code, because we have to take 10 steps back and think about these problems from a really systemic standpoint. And that's why we need change makers in Congress. We need change makers in state houses all across this country. Lewis, in 2017, the lines crossed. Firearms overtook motor vehicle injuries as cause of death for children. And this is what you expounded upon in your recent lecture. Yes, and it really does depend on the age group uh, that you look at. So in our group, our paper, we looked at children and youth 1 to 24, because again, as pediatricians, we do take care of young adults through their college age. And so again, you'll see sort of different years, 2019, 2017. But the, the point is, right, there has been a very focused approach to decreasing motor vehicle crashes and therefore, we've seen decreases in injuries and deaths for, for all Americans, not just children. And in the absence of that very focused and intentional approach, we have seen the opposite for firearms and that we have seen firearm injuries and deaths increase, again, not just for kids, but also uh, for adults. Now, because children are generally healthier, they don't have other reasons uh, for you know, death in general. And so that's where firearms have become the leading cause of death over, you know, overtaking motor vehicle crashes. But as non-health um, focused people may not realize things like cancer, infections, congenital conditions, those are not the leading causes of death in our kids. It has always been injuries, but now it's firearms kill more kids than any other mechanism. So I'm wondering if you can share when you realized you had a voice, when you started using your voice it's so interesting when I reflect back on the early stages of my career, because I was very focused on becoming a good clinician, starting my own family, doing that asthma research. And it wasn't until the Parkland shooting, I attended a mom's meeting where they described the Be Smart program and they said, we are trying to get it into the children's hospital, but we're not having any luck. They didn't know who I was or where I worked. I raised my hand and I said, well, that's where I work. That's how I can help you. And that just clicked for me because I needed to find my lane into this movement. I needed to feel like I needed to be there to help them and that I had a role in the movement. And it was just so beautiful the way it clicked. And the rest is really history because we were one of the first medical institutions to partner with the Be Smart program. The South Carolina chapter of the AAP then partnered with the Be Smart program. And we've just had this incredible success. So 
I started attending community gun violence prevention, gun violence awareness events. And I would notice this phenomenon where I'm sitting next to someone who's been working in the community, doing this unglamorous, backbreaking work of daily advocacy. And they have lived experience and they would say something and then I would say something. But because I have the fancy letters behind my name, everyone would nod and say, oh, yes, what Dr. Andrew said. And I just realized that, like, that is such a privilege. So many people who are doing work in this space do not have that privilege. And we all have to lean into that and use our privilege to help lift the voices of people who don't experience the same privilege. And it's just been a very steep learning curve for me to see what my privilege is and to understand how to use my voice to create change. So in the late 2000s, actually, I was asked to uh, help support booster seat legislation in our state. And we actually were one of the later states in the U.S. to pass that. But that's when I realized that my voice at the state house in Massachusetts really meant something along with the voices of uh, families, you know, who had to survive crashes where their children were injured. And I realized that my experience as a physician that I could represent all the patients, uh, multiple patients that I've seen and, and really give that experience. And because of the letters, again, after my name have that credibility that when I speak, you know, people will listen. So I've been doing injury prevention advocacy at the state level since that time. And then more recently, again, because we can actually talk about firearms, uh, have been able to do that at the state and even the federal level. Uh, But for a long time, we really couldn't talk about that uh, at the federal level at all. Um, But it's good to see that especially, you know, physicians are being able to have that voice. But more importantly, really, it's the survivors um, and the families and those with lived experience that their voices are even more important. And that hopefully we can help lift those voices up. We can certainly never substitute um, our experience in caring for those families is never going to match, you know, the, the long term mental health, behavioral, societal consequences that these that these families have to live with every day. Many times in the news or podcast episodes, when we talk about gun violence and a firearm injury, it's a trauma surgeon or it's an emergency doctor. You know, why is it important that today we're sitting and talking about this with you, subject matter experts as pediatricians? Annie, what are your thoughts then, Lois? I think two things. I think, you know, we are really important partners with trauma surgeons in this work. One of my my key partners, Dr. Ashley Hink, is a trauma surgeon at my institution. She runs our hospital-based violence intervention program. So we have to be doing this arm in arm. I think from a really practical standpoint, talking about it from the perspective of children with bullet holes in them is a really effective way to get the message across. You know, the trauma surgeons certainly have the stories and so does Lois of, you know, being in the trauma bay with those horrific pictures of blood all over your scrubs and your shoes and the floor. But pediatricians are experts in prevention. We're experts in anticipatory guidance. Pediatricians are essentially the most trusted profession in the country. And one of the least trusted is our lawmakers. Um, So we have to take advantage of that. And we have to lean as pediatricians into our expertise in anticipatory guidance, prevention, um, injury prevention, and um, really get our seat at this table. And I think being able to talk about children when you focus on keeping our children safe 
It's very hard to make an argument against that. So that gets us a foot in the door that might be harder if that is not your primary focus and what you're starting with. And that's why we're seeing legislation in states like Illinois. Last year, they passed a safer storage law so that they now have resources for pediatricians and other primary care physicians to provide gun safes and lockboxes to their families. And Georgia and South Carolina have now introduced that legislation. It hasn't been passed, but I think it's hard to even think that they could have even talked about it, you know, even two or three years ago. And again, starting with the safety of children, hard to argue with that. Yeah. So let's pivot a little bit to the politics and and have Annie share her her story. Annie, you started Their Future, Our Vote. And from the website, our mission is simple, to educate leaders and lawmakers on policies that will create a brighter, healthier, and more equitable future for our children. Yes. So this is a evolution that started when I decided to run for Congress in 2022. And that experience gave me a really unique behind the scenes view of how campaigns work, of how Washington DC works, of who the power brokers are, who has a seat at the table, and probably not super surprising to any of us here, but children do not have a seat at the table. They don't vote, they don't have money, and that's what everyone tells me the first time I tell them what I'm doing with their future, our vote. Of course, they don't have a seat at the table. They're not old enough to vote and they don't have money. That's not okay with me. There are 73 million children in this country and they deserve a voice in Washington, D.C. and in state houses all across this country. What I learned through the experience of running for office is the realities of our political system in that money matters. And so we have amazing child advocacy organizations in this country already that are fighting for children's well-being and a brighter future for our kids, like the American Academy of Pediatrics and First Focus. What we don't have is the political arm of those organizations, and that's where their future, our vote, is going to come in to actually bring that political money to the table to directly support candidates who are willing to put children's interests front and center. You can watch an entire campaign cycle of an excellent candidate and sometimes they will never talk about children. You can go to a candidate's website, click on every single issues page, nothing about kids. And as a pediatrician and a mom, it just blows my mind. So there's a huge gap in the political landscape in this country. And that's what we're trying to fill with this organization. Our role is to be that voice. Uh, and that's why perfect that this podcast is, you know, the visible voices. And so as children can't vote and they don't have the money that we need to really be that voice for them and join the advocacy organizations that are standing up for kids, uh, including, uh, but not limited to, of course, the American Academy of Pediatrics and others. Because uh, unfortunately, as one of my friends would say, you know, children are kind of budget dust in the, in the government machine. Um, and so they just don't, rise to the surface. Never heard that term. It's amazing. The listeners and I have a sense, but I'm going to ask the question they've been wanting me to ask. What keeps you up at night? Probably just the safety of being anywhere um, in our country now. That's something that having been a child of the 70s, and that's going to date me, you know, you never worried about your own safety. Um, but uh, I was in the emergency department when the Boston Marathon bomb went off. I answered the disaster phone call. Um, and then just seeing that we are seeing increasing fire and violence 
everywhere. Again, it used to be kind of considered mostly an inner city urban problem, and no doubt that is still a disproportionate share of where our kids are being affected. But uh, again, we also know about the shootings that we hear about every day in the news, and those are just the ones we hear about every day in the news. And so how do we make the society and our world safer um, for our kids, you know, and ourselves. And that that's what keeps me up at night. I feel I'm sure like so many other people who are engaged in any type of advocacy, specifically that involving children and gun violence prevention, I just feel an enormous weight on my shoulders. Um, ever since I started this work, I just feel responsible for creating the change that I know our children deserve. And that's hard and that weighs on me. And especially, you know, running for office felt sort of like the biggest thing I could do to create the change I wanted to create. And I didn't win. And of course, I think about what I could have done differently, but there are so many factors at play. And then I had the idea to launch this organization. And everyone I talk to in Washington, D.C. and beyond who works in these spaces is like, yes, this is what we've been waiting for. This is the change that we need to see. And so that feels like a ginormous weight on my shoulders because I want to do it right. I want to be successful. My biggest fear right now is that what I'm doing is not going to succeed. And I fear that there's not going to be someone coming up behind me and trying it again in a couple of years the moment for our children in this country could not be more urgent. Um, unfortunately, the environment for child advocacy is deteriorating, especially in places like South Carolina. That makes our job a lot harder, but it just goes to show you how incredibly urgent and important this moment is. And so I just, I go to bed at night worrying that we're not going to have the success that we, that our children need us to have. And we are at that moment, this is an inflection point. And Lois, some of the work you have done um, has taken the framework, health design framework. Audience members, you may recall that I'm a big fan of health design. And I'll talk about the health design mindset and that framework for solving problems, looking for solutions, creating change. Uh, we are at an inflection point where the work that's been done in injury prevention, injury prevention science, for example, motor vehicle accidents can be applied to firearm injury and prevention. So when we think about health design framework, we think about a question, a problem, we brainstorm, uh, we whiteboard, and we come up with prototypes for solutions. And then we reiterate and do that thought process again, ultimately with the goal after many iterations and prototypes of spitting out a solution. And that solution is better had we not involved the end user, the patient, the caregiver, the clinician. So you have uh, talked about this uh, in your lectures, Lois. So can you walk us through, for example, the Haddon matrix and uh, injury prevention framework? Happy to. Dr. William Haddon was a physician and actually ended up being the first administrator of the National um, Highway Traffic Safety Administration, which is the agency tasked with making our roads and our cars safer. And he was really one of the first to say that injuries are not accidents, that these are actually knowable events, and that if we can somehow mitigate the force of what occurs during an injury or the energy, um, that we can actually decrease the bodily harm. So sometimes you can't prevent the crash from happening, right? You're on an icy road here in Massachusetts, you know it's going to happen, but then your airbag goes off. And so that now your chest and your head are, you know, protected from hitting the steering wheel and the windshield. 
And so what Dr. Haddon said is if we think about the different phases in time for when an injury occurs, pre-event, during the event, and after event, and also think about the different factors, so the human or the host, the actual agent, which could be the motor vehicle or the firearm, and then the environment, both the physical as well as this sort of social or you know political environment. If you put that together into a matrix, you can actually have a very systematic way of thinking about different interventions, both you know about the actual like, like I said, firearm or motor vehicle, but also the policies and the laws and regulations that can lead to a more kind of safe environment to decrease injuries. And that is exactly what we have seen with motor vehicles. And so in my talks around the country, what I like to say is that, you know, we know that there are things that we can do for firearms and actually, believe it or not, some of those things are things we can do right now. So what are some of those things we can do right now? Well, one of the things I do like to talk about is smart gun technology. Now, that will not affect the more than four to 500, mil, 500 million guns that are out there already, but new guns that are purchased, these are not available on the market right now, but this is a design thing, right? So just like your phone um, is only able to be used by the authorized user, generally, you know, you, for example, um, same thing with a firearm. They can de- they can design it so that only uh, the identified user, and it can identify you with the fingerprint, would be authorized to pull the trigger. And it can actually be set up in a way that more than one person could use it, right? So that would prevent the curious three-year-old from finding a, finding a loaded gun in the nightstand from accidentally shooting and killing their four-year-old sibling. It would prevent the suicidal 15-year-old who had no history of depression, but maybe broke up with their you know, partner and in an impulsive moment finds the gun that's on the top of the refrigerator. So that technology is available. It is not available on the consumer market, but that's just one of the things, right? Like I said, with the Bic lighter, it's hard to light a candle, but it's easy to fire a gun. We can make it more difficult so that those who shouldn't fire guns wouldn't have access. What kind of regulatory controls are coming up or already here? Well, one of the things that the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act that was passed federally last year has a lot of support for funding for extreme risk protection order laws. So that's not so much of a regulatory policy, but that is a law that would allow courts, and there's 19 states and the District of Columbia that have these laws right now, but allows courts to basically prohibit an at-risk person from either possessing or purchasing a gun. So someone who um, maybe posted on social media they were suicidal or posted that they were you know, going to go to the school with a gun, that then very quickly a court is able to you know, as- assess the situation, the individual, and prohibit that person from having a firearm. And early research has actually shown that in the state of California, that the extreme risk protection order law there, also known as red flag laws, probably has prevented some number of mass shootings. And so the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act has put in money to increase more states, to encourage more states in passing those laws, and also to increase uh, knowledge about those laws in the states that already have them. I was just sitting here reflecting where we have the privilege of listening to um, one of our nation's experts, Dr. Lee, and I'm contrasting this conversation with conversations I've recently had with some of our lawmakers in Washington, D.C., who have the power to enact the solutions that we know exist. And it's just so infuriating because I operate in this space and that space. 
that we have such a disconnect between the expertise and we have lawmakers who lack moral courage and who have the audacity to think they understand these problems in a way that the experts do not. So um, I just, we have to get beyond this hyper-partisanship on this issue. We have to hold our elected officials accountable. We have to make them understand that this is a scientific problem with a public health solution. And we have the solutions and we just need the moral courage to act. I don't even think we know how we're feeling about this um, because it is not healthy psychologically to wake up every day and see the headlines both locally and nationally. It is not psychologically healthy to drop your children off at school and say goodbye on a Tuesday and every day look at them and think, is this the last day I'm going to see you? Like our parents, my parents didn't think that when they dropped me off at school. And if we continue to work hard, hopefully our own children won't think that when they're dropping their children off at school. We can have this one generation, this lockdown generation, and we can move beyond that. Um, but we don't understand the long-term psychological impacts of lockdown drills and the fear of school shootings that they're having on our children. We don't understand the psychological impact of what we experience every day just as citizens of this country. But I do not believe that we are numb because every time I go to a Moms Demand Action meeting or a community event, there are more and more people who are finding their way into this movement because they have had enough. And there are reasons to be hopeful. And so what I'd like to highlight is areas of research, uh, areas of movement. Uh, Lois, if you can take us down that road. Yeah. So again, I think just going with that frame of we all want to live in a safer society. So how can we get there? Uh, so in addition to extreme risk protection order laws, we know that the majority of Americans and including Americans who own firearms uh, support universal background checks. And we need better research basically to understand which laws are most effective and how can we most effectively enforce them. But part of getting there is actually we need more research funding. So in 2020, for the first time, Congress appropriated $25 million, which was split evenly between the uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the National Institute of Health. But uh, and 25 million might sound like a lot. But when you think about the National Heart, Lung, Blood Institute, they get over three billion dollars of funding a year. We have a long way to go. And so given that this is the leading cause of death in our uh, children, our nation's children, really, we need to understand better what are policies that can protect them, what are interventions, and then what are the effective treatments for those who are survivors of gun violence, including um, better programs and support in the community. I think there's a lot of reasons to feel optimistic. And um, I often get asked this question at the end of an interview, you know, are you hopeful? Do you have optimism? And my answer is always, I have three young children. I have no choice but to be optimistic because what will happen to me if I lose my optimism? I have to believe that we are capable of solving this problem. And people who maybe have not been super dialed into the gun violence prevention movement might not be aware, you know, what a big deal it was when we passed the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act that 14 Republican senators voted for that bill that the NRA told them to vote against. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, that would have never happened. One of my senators, Lindsey Graham, 
voted for that bill. Republicans are backing off. We're going to see fewer and fewer of them campaigning, holding assault rifles, going to campaign events with guns on their hip because the culture around this issue in our country is changing. When Sandy Hook happened, there was no counterpoint to the NRA. People say nothing's changed since Sandy Hook, and that is not true. We now have an army, a grassroots army of mothers and others all across this country who are engaged every day in this fight. And we are making incremental progress, but it is this small progress every single day that will lead to that ultimate like watershed moment that we are all waiting for. If I can jump in on that, there are so many grassroots organizations and they are working very hard. And when I have seen that they are coming together in an organized fashion, they are working together, uh, trying to not duplicate efforts, but to amplify efforts. And when I first saw that, I was truly heartened that that we are in a different space and we're making cultural change and that all of us working together really can turn this around. The Risa Wrap-Up. Special thanks to Annie and to Lois. I loved our conversation. And Lois, what a full circle. Lois and I, listeners, uh, went to medical school together in Philadelphia. So it's a delight to uh, be able to amplify her voice on this episode. So um, sobering topic, staggering statistics. I think what keeps coming to mind for me, listeners, is one busload full of children every three days. I am optimistic. I'm hopeful thanks to the education information provided by Annie and by Lois in terms of legislation, increased safety, and that health design thinking framework is at hand. We are thinking about the end user, be it the child, be it the parent, be it the clinician, and how we can address this public health epidemic. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. Our production team includes Stacey Gitlin, Dr. Giuliano DePorto, and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued. <laughs>